Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to another virtual church service. If you hang in there with me at the end of this message, I'll have a very important announcement that I want to share with all of you uh, about the uh, gradual reopening of our church, and I just want to share that with you. I want to say an extra special welcome to our moms this morning. Happy Mother's Day, and I, I hope today really is special for you. Uh, we're going to continue our series called God of All Grace, and today's message is A Proven Faith. Uh, we get that right out of the text today, which is 1 Peter 1, uh, 6 through 9. I want to read it to you. Peter says this. He says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your very souls. And so what we're going to learn from this passage today, now last week uh, Peter talked a lot about hope, and this week he is going to talk a lot more about faith. He says, though you have not seen him, you, that's true, you've never seen Jesus, but you love him. And even though you can't see him right now, you know him. So I think the first thing that we draw out of this text, firstly, is that the believer's joy is indescribably great. Now, it doesn't always feel that way. I'll say that again. The believer's joy is indescribably great. And it doesn't always feel that way. But we are talking about a deep-rooted, deep-seated joy that cannot be shaken if we follow Peter's advice today. So... Uh, last week, he really focused on a living hope and the nature of hope. And we learned that a genuine living hope isn't circumstantial, it isn't self-referential, and it isn't corruptible. And so it's a reasonable expectation of better days ahead. And that expectation, we learn, is based on a sure foundation of evidence. It has an unbreakable promise by a God who never goes back on his word. And it is kept in heaven for us, awaiting the day we meet the Lord either uh, in death or in his second coming. And now Peter says uh, he, that he, he brings us um, to this idea that that hope brings us great joy. It brings us indescribable. He calls it indescribable, inexpressible. Uh, I can honestly say with the birth of every one of our kids, uh, Carrie and I, every one of our kids, that I experienced something like that, at least by analogy. Um, I experienced a kind of in, inexpressible, indescribable joy. Uh, before we had children, I often, as a young guy, wondered what it was like to have kids. And I knew what it was like to be a kid. I knew what it was like to be someone's child, but I had no idea what it was like to have children of my own. And I, I think I could say that Carrie's joy was different than mine. I think I would say that because the intensity of her pain gave her a dimension of joy that I, I couldn't experience. Now, I shared her experience of it, but that's all it was, sharing the experience. Um, I didn't really suffer a twinge of anguish in, in, in the birth of any of our kids, except when she squeezed my hand so hard that she almost broke my fingers. But that inexpressible joy of new life coming into the world. Again, for me, not much anguish, except in the curious case of little Hayden Carl. Our firstborn son, Tyler, took his sweet old time coming into the world. 
We even had a couple of false visits to the hospital and a couple of uh, practice runs where we had to run down there because she was having these Braxton Hicks contractions. And uh, so for the first kid, I had it all planned out. I was, I was very organized. I had a map uh, with routes highlighted on the map. I had a bag packed for both of us right by the door, Carrie and I. Uh, we were ready to go at a moment's notice. But the boy just took his sweet old time. So I thought it, it would be the same with little Hayden, our second born. Uh, but it was not to be. Uh, Carrie, one night, she was about uh, she was about nine months pregnant, and one night she had just the faintest contraction and told me, I, I'm starting to have a, a few faint contractions at 9 p.m. I said, okay, and I went to bed. I went to bed thinking, this will probably one of those phantom pains. Uh, and I woke up at midnight with her shaking me, saying, I'm having this baby right now. And I leapt out of bed in one of those sort of half-dreamy states where you where you don't know if you're you're awake or, or dreaming. And I just got up and started walking around and grabbed a bag and started packing it. And she said, no, no, don't pack the bag. I'm having this baby right now. I said, no, 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 you're not. Get in the car. We're going to the hospital. She sat down on the floor and little Hayden Carl began to make his entrance into the world. And, and I, my reaction was, I screamed in terror. I woke up our toddler who was in the next room, who was in the room next to us, and he screamed in terror. <laughs> and then I called 911 and they attempted to walk me through, talk me through the delivery of the child, um, go get some towels, go get some hot water. I said, no, no, I'm not delivering this child. Can you send some people over here? And later she said, we are. And about two minutes later, the, uh, the uh, EMTs walked in the room. The ambulance guys walked in the room. I don't know what you call them. But the emergency guys came in. And, uh, and later, the 911 dispatch officer was kind enough to send me the cassette tape uh, recording of our phone call. And if you listen to it, which you never will, um, but it can only be described as the most hilarious 911 tape I've ever heard. On the tape, you can clearly hear me breathing very heavy, and then screaming and freaking utterly out. I was in shock. I was in terror. I didn't know how to deliver a baby. I thought I was going to do more harm than good. And at that point, I really was. And at one point in the tape, you can hear my wife, the 911 dispatcher, uh, the operator, and my toddler, all three trying to calm me down. <laughs> so talk about being useless. You know, Jesus can save the useless. He just can't use the useless, right? So, <laughs> so I was utterly useless. And the MTs put Carrie on a gurney. They wheeled her out and off they drove. And I followed with my little toddler, Tyler, in our little car. <laughs> and when I got to the hospital, I was expecting to watch her deliver him, uh, but was informed that she already had him in the ambulance. And when I saw that little boy, I mean, when I got upstairs and I saw that little boy and I caught a glimpse of his little face and they put him in my arms, I was filled with, I was filled with the same in, inexpressible joy that I had with my other kids, except the trauma of the situation magnified my joy because my joy was mixed with relief. And if you've ever experienced that, you know 
what I'm talking about. I don't have to describe to you parents what it's like to bring a new baby into the world. You already know what it's like. And so this is the kind of Christian joy. This is an analogy of Christian joy. This is an analogy of that indescribable thing that is deeply seated in the Christian heart. We have a joy that really cannot be shaken by circumstances, especially if we follow Peter's advice today, right? Um, so it's kind of like, I, I sort of describe it like Jesus healing a blind man and giving him back his sight. And there's a few stories where there seems to be in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, there's a lot of people like the blind man who gets healed. And I wonder if there were other blind guys who were like his buddies and they didn't get healed. And the blind guy went back at the Pool of Bethesda and, or the Pool of Bethesda and he was trying to describe what it was like to see uh, to his other blind friends. It's a kind of indescribable thing. A blind person who has received their sight can almost not describe what it's like to watch a beautiful sunrise or a sunset over a mountain vista. We just can't do it. But Peter says in verse 6, he says, You rejoice in this even though, for, even though now, for a short time, if necessary, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. A lot of words in there will unpack a few of them. You see, the intensity of our joy is heightened by the intensity of our trials. It really can be. And now think for a second about finding a lost kid in the mall at the, or at the county fair, right? If you've, ever, if you've ever found someone else's kid who was lost, look, you have compassion for that kid because you're a normal person. And you have mercy for that child, genuine care and concern for a little kid who is lost and can't find their mommy and can't find their way. And when mama finally finds you both, you reunite the kid with the parent and her joy is expressed usually in tears, right? But my joy at the reunion was quite expressible because he's not my kid. I mean, I'm glad the kid is not harmed. I'm glad he's back with his parent. But it's something about, but mama's joy is something totally different than what I'm experiencing. That's a crude analogy, but you get where I'm going. When, when you can have an experience of joy in your heart that's so deep and rooted so deep and connected with God that it's very difficult to just put it into words. Because the joy is sometimes preceded by loss, anguish, or genuine heartache over a child that, that was lost and now is found. He says, if necessary, you suffer various trials uh, or trials of, of various kinds. And this doesn't mean that you will suffer, or at least this doesn't mean that you and I have to suffer the way that everyone else has to suffer. Uh, it doesn't mean that, that we'll be spared everything either, but it doesn't mean that we'll go through everything that everyone else is going through. Um, God has different trials and different tests that he brings into all of our lives for his own purposes and for his own reasons. Um, and some of us are spared things that, that others experience. You may never have an experience of, of a cancer diagnosis or heart disease. Did you know, I looked this up this last week, did you know that heart disease kills 700,000 people a year? Heart disease kills between 50 and 60,000 people a month. One person every 37 seconds dies, drops dead of a coronary or dies of some complication of heart disease. And you may never have that, and I hope you never do. You may never get a cancer diagnosis. 
you may never catch a deadly virus like the flu or like this other crazy thing that's in our culture right now, this weird virus that's kind of taken over our economy and taken over our country right now. You may never experience that, and I hope you never do. You, you may never, ever lose a child. I hope you don't, or lose a job, or lose your eyesight. I hope you experience none of that. I pray your life from this moment forward is just an unbroken chain of easy and heartwarming experiences. I pray that your life would be free from every twinge of discomfort, nothing but balmy seas and clear skies. I pray your heart never aches so much that you feel like it will break in two. That's what I pray for you. But I highly suspect that God is not going to answer that prayer for most of us because sometimes it's necessary. He says, if necessary, and sometimes it is. Sometimes it's necessary for us to experience a season in our life, seasons of trials that test our mettle and suffering that brings a great anticipation of the glory that Jesus is going to reveal in us. Second observation or insight I think we make from the text is that uh, the trials prove the genuineness of our faith. He says this is their purpose. This is their reason. The, pro the trials prove the genuineness of of our faith. Now see, he goes on to say this in the next verse. He says, such trials show the proven character of your faith, which is much more valuable than gold. It's more valuable than the most valuable metal on earth. Gold that is tested by fire, even though it is passing away and will bring praise and glory and, and honor to Jesus Christ when it is revealed. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the character and the strength of our faith. The phrase Show the proven character, okay, that phrase. <clears throat> when he says show the proven character, it, it is actually the translation of one Greek word, and it's the Greek word dokimion. And the word dokimion is, is kind of where we get the word document. When we document something, this is, this is like that. So it's the process, and here's what it means. It means the process of determining the genuineness of something, usually the result of a test, so it's the process of determining the genuineness of something, and that's usually a result of a test. Uh, testing in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome could involve everything from physical trials, uh, if the person was to be a soldier or a trainer, uh, or skill-based trials, like if the person was going to be a physician. It could include intellectual trials, such as those involved in philosophical guilds or schools. It included moral trials or even... Um, some craftsmen, in the case of a craftsman or an apprentice, they had to, they had to demonstrate their skills uh, in whatever trade they were in. So this was the ancient equivalent of modern credentialing. Again, this was the ancient equivalent of modern credentialing. The gold is proven genuine, revealed by fire. It's credentialed and certified as the real deal. And Paul tells us what the credentials are for the Christian who, uh, who ministers in co the compassion and ministers in the word. It's the truth, and it's the healing power of Jesus. Those are the credentials. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us this. He says, be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved. There's that word again. Be diligent to present yourself as one of God, as one who has been dokimian, one who's, who has been documented, one who has been credentialed, one who has been approved and tested a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly handling or teaching the word of his truth. 
So the word dokimas here appears uh, to refer to the credentialing process, a worker, one who puts uh, some effort and attention into being able to rightly handle God's word and teach it to others. Proficiency in God's word is paramount. I want to say that again. You can't share the truth. You and I can't share the truth with others if we don't know the truth. If we don't know the truth, we can't share it. So proficiency in God's word is paramount in terms of our discipleship. And then the second way Paul tells us that we are credentialed, uh, tested, approved for ministry is the sharing of burdens of the people of God. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, I want to read that to you. He says this, really powerful scripture here. I want to read it. 2 Corinthians 1, 13 through, uh, 3 through 7, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He says, uh, He comforts us in all of our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those uh, who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. And if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which uh, produces in you patient endurance and the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that uh, as you share in the suffering, so also you will share in the comfort. Again, he says, as you have, sh you have shared in the sufferings for Christ and in Christ, you also share in the comfort. So we, we praise and we serve the God of all comfort who comforts us in the midst of our trials. And this world needs people like that. They need people who are grounded in the truth, grounded in God's word, and they need people who know what it's like to go through some stuff and to receive the comfort of Jesus so that they can pass it on to others. Now, the word for comfort is the word parakaleo. It's the word parakaleo, and it means to instill courage or cheer. It means to instill courage or cheer. And it is the verbal form of the word Paraclete. Now, that's the word that Jesus used in John's gospel to describe the Holy Spirit, uh, whom he would pour out on all believers. God the Holy Spirit is God's comforting presence. I want to say that again. God the Holy Spirit, he's the paraclete. He's God's comforting presence. And what God does is parakaleo. He comforts us in the midst of our sufferings. And then we, parakaleo, we comfort others in the midst of their sufferings. And Jesus said this, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God's Spirit is present to instill courage and to cheer us, the believer, and to cheer us on in the midst of our trials. I remember the last year of my doctoral program at Talbot School of Theology, I think it was 2014, is the last year, 2014 or 15. And I was also scheduled for a summer sabbatical that summer, when I, when I got done with my last class, I came back from uh, Biola University in Los Angeles or in the Los Angeles area, and I remember I had a summer sabbatical, and I, was gonna, I decided I was going to write my dissertation that summer, and I was just going to knock it out, and I wasn't going to take the three years that they normally give you. And I'm, I'm a pretty industrious person. I, I tend to, you know, if I have a goal like that, I, I tend to uh, get it done. But then I had also gotten word that uh, I had gotten news from my literary agent 
that a publishing house, a major publishing house, one of the largest in the country, wanted to publish a book proposal that I had given them for a book called Father, Son, and the Other One. And that book was my proposal for my magnum opus for what life in the spirit as a present reality, that is my theology of experience or the theology of experiencing the spirit. And I wrote it in such a way that was very illustrative. I had a lot of stories in it, but at the time all I had was a proposal, which was 15 pages. <laughs> so of that book, that 60,000 word book, uh, all I had was a proposal. And I also, all I had was a doctoral dissertation proposal and I had one summer to get them both done. And I remember they were both due at the end of August, kind of beginning of September. Both of them were a Herculean trial, a gauntlet in the middle of it. And I became exasperated and I remember, so here's what happened. What, what happened was I had to get away from my kids and my wife. And I hate to say that, but I could have no distractions that summer. So for my summer sabbatical, I spent my time uh, sort of actually away. I went away. I went to the Oregon coast. I went to Ketchum, uh, let's see, Ketchum, Washington, stayed at a pastor's retreat there. <laughs> I just wrote my brains out. I wrote and wrote. And I can't tell you how difficult it was to be. My, my kids were little at that time. They were so little. And I can't tell you how difficult it was to be away from my kids that long, I thought I was going to crack under the pressure, even though it was one of the greatest opportunities of my life. And I remember at one point I said to Carrie, I said, I'm done. I'm going to quit this. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> and I'm not going to write this book. And she said, oh, oh, you are going to finish it. And let me tell you something. My wife played the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comforted me through her and instilled in me courage and cheer. She's the one who gave it to me and helped me to get to the finish line. And I ended up finishing both of those projects. And, uh, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. In the midst of a cross-shaped life, in the midst of a cross-shaped life where there is suffering in the life of the believer, there are hardships and trials that God brings into our life when it's necessary in certain times. And he instills in us courage, he cheers us on, he lifts our heads in those moments when we feel like we cannot take one more step in this race or experience one more responsibility loaded on us or, or experience one more test or trial. God's comfort to us becomes the comfort through us. God's comfort to us becomes his comfort through us to others. And it's his credentialing process for a compassionate, merciful ministry that he wants us to have for others. Um, and it's really the gift of empathy. When I sympathize with you, I see you. Hear me well. When I sympathize with you, I see you. When I empathize with you, I walk with you. When I empathize with you, I feel it with you. And we also, we, we share in this ministry of the word and comforting each other with the comfort that we have received from the Lord. And we also share in triumph. Man, I love a good rejoicing story. I love the spirit of rejoicing that takes place when people hear good news, news they've been hoping for, 
news they've been waiting for, that they've been expecting. And Peter says, you, you've never physically seen Jesus, right? Okay, so I think we would all agree that none of us have ever physically seen Jesus. And this is the expectation of the Christian life. People don't physically see Jesus, right? He says, you've never seen him, but you know him. You've never watched him walk on water as easily as someone walking across the meadow, but you believe in him. You've never watched him shout into implacable cliffs and a hillside tomb calling a rotting corpse back to life like he did Lazarus. But by God the Holy Spirit, you know Jesus, you know him in a way that is that is that is absolutely irrefutable because it's a knowledge, it's a belief, it's a knowing and a loving of Jesus the Messiah in your heart. You love him. And right now you rejoice in a sure hope. Sometimes there's nothing to do but rejoice in what you can't see, in an unseen hope. But most of the time, if we're honest, we would have to say that we rejoice in a life that is frankly overflowing with God's blessings. Where do we even start when, when we want to count all the blessings and all the goodness that God has poured into our lives? Most of the time, I, I am of sound mind and body. Most of the time, I feel love and I feel pretty cared for by those around me. Most of the time, my needs are relatively well met. That's not true for a lot of people in our country right now. But most of the time, we have to say, I think we could say that God's abundance is a tangible reality in our lives. Life is good, and it's supposed to be. I'm going to say that again. Life is good, and it's supposed to be. But sometimes it's necessary for us to endure seasons of resistance. You know, I don't know about you, but um, I'm working on losing my quarantine weight. <laughs> uh, I can hear some of you through the TV right now saying amen. Uh, I'm working on losing some of my quarantine weight. I, I have lost some, actually. And I'm, I'm on a good trajectory. I'm on a good path here. Uh, but I can't go to the gym, which is one of my favorite things to do. And uh, so I'm getting up every day, just about every day, not every day, most days, getting up. And I'm working out with these little bands that I bought uh, off of Amazon.com. They're, they're, they're exercise bands. How many of you guys have those? Exercise bands at home? Okay, I never really use those. But when I first got them and took them out of the package, I was like, what? I thought for sure I'm gonna break these little rubber bands. And honestly, I thought I'd probably just end up giving, to, giving them to my daughter, Carly, because they looked like they were for a, a little girl. Uh, but, but then I started using them in the morning and you know what happened? Those exercise bands that I use just about every morning are kicking my butt because they really do work to provide you the resistance that you need to build strength again. And there is a strength that only comes from seasons of resistance. I want to say that again. There is a strength that only comes from seasons of resistance. You can't get it any other way. Now, listen to me. There are seasons in your life when God wants you to prosper. God wants you to experience abundance. And most of the time, we would have to admit we do. <laughs> 
Most of the time, we would have to admit God has surrounded us with loving people and caring people and good jobs and the things that God has poured into our life. But there are times, there are seasons in our life when God brings us into resistance so that we can grow. There is a strength that only comes through the environment of experiencing hardship and resistance. And if God has given the believer the potential for an inexpressible joy, then what holds us back from it? What holds us back from it? If God has given us the opportunity to grow through hardship, to be credentialed by receiving comfort, by being rooted and grounded in his word, being, being, being approved as workmen who need not be ashamed and who have been grounded in his word, by being people who have received comfort and being vessels of minister and ministers of his mercy to other people, what's keeping us from the blessed life? What's keeping us from experiencing the fullness of this joy, this inexpressible joy. So I think he has some takeaways and some prescriptions for us, and I want to give you two of them. The first one is this. We have to change our mindset. We must change our mindset. Trials are temporary, and there are opportunities to experience an uncommon joy. I want to say that again. Trials are temporary, and if we change our mindset and understand that what we're going through right now, even if we have to endure it or some aspects of it, to the day we die, they're temporary because the eternal weight of glory that is waiting for us in resurrection hope and in, in, that is kept for us in heaven, oh man, it's unspeakable. And so we have to change our mindset and we also have to change our objective. We have to change our objective. Our, our objective in life cannot be to extract every moment of fleeting happiness that we can from this life but to set our hopes on that which we do not see, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, to live with an anticipation of salvation that he will bring us from heaven. And in the meantime, we choose to colonize this world with the life of heaven. So we live with this living hope, this expectation of heaven. And until we get there, we colonize this world with the life of heaven. And our lives exhibit resurrection life and glory. Our lives are to exhibit resurrection life and the joy of the Holy Spirit right now in the midst of the testing and in the midst of the trials that demonstrate the genuineness of our faith. I want to pray for you. And then I'm going to make an important announcement for our church, okay? Will you pray with me? God, right now we just come to you. And Lord, we humble ourselves. We're so thankful for the opportunity to hear your word, to be able to be, be cross-examined by the word of God. And Lord, Peter has brought us great encouragement this morning. And Lord, we are so thankful for the encouragement that he has brought us. And Lord, we just pray that you will enable us, enable us, Lord, to change our mindset to eternal things. God, we pray that you would help us to live with a different objective, to live with the objective of being ministers of the life of heaven in this world until we go to heaven when we die. Will you help us to do that? In Jesus' powerful, mighty name, amen. I love you guys. Now, I wanna make an important announcement. Don't, don't go away. Don't turn your TV off. Uh, before we get going um, with the rest of our Mother's Day festivities today, I just wanna share our intentions as a leadership team in terms of opening up our church uh, back to public gatherings 
uh, in accordance with our state's stage, they have a four-stage process, stage reopening plan. We, uh, Christ Community Church, we're doing our best to obey Paul's command in Romans 13. I want to read you what he says in Romans 13 because I think it's very important for us to be reminded of this because I, I tell you, the more I see people's posts on Facebook, I think people are not reading the Bible. And Paul says this, he says in Romans 13, 1, he says, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except for God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God and his commands and those who oppose it will, be, uh, will bring judgment on themselves. I know that sounds pretty hardcore, but I promise you, if you read the context, the rest of that chapter, I want to encourage you to do this and challenge you to do this. If you will read the rest of that chapter and that paragraph in Romans 13, I think it will help us to gain a mindset where we're going to be good citizens. You know, when Jesus was accosted by the temple guards in Gethsemane, he was asked a question that almost everybody ignores. Almost everybody reads right over. He, he, was, he asked the question, am I leading a rebellion that you come out to me with swords and soldiers? And the answer to that question was no. Jesus is not leading a rebellion. And he isn't leading uh, a revolution that he's called you to. He's leading a counterculture. That's a very different thing. Jesus is leading a counterculture where the highest ethic of that culture, that society, is to love God supremely above all else. And the second highest demand, the second highest ethic of that movement, the Jesus movement, is to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. To think of others, not just think about ourselves. And so the governing authorities in our state, uh, of our state, have not made unwarranted or excessive demands uh, in light of this crisis. They haven't. They haven't asked us to deny our faith. They have not asked us to do anything that uh, would would compromise our conscience or cause us to act uh, against our conscience. They haven't done that. What they've done, what they have asked us to do is temporarily close our doors so that we could do our part as Idahoans to slow the trajectory of this deadly, horrendous virus that has been unleashed on our country. And so since they asked us to merely obey the second commandment of Jesus, which is to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, we were eager to do that. We were eager to show them that the gospel is not just something we preach, it's something we live, and we live out these values in the gospel. We want to model what it means to be a good citizen of our state and a good citizen of our kingdom, which uh, we are to present we are to represent at all times. So we were willing and able to hold virtual worship gatherings, teaching God's word uh, for gathering in worship in our homes. And, uh, but that time is actually coming to an end now. With the loosening of restrictions in our state, we will be reopening the church also in stages as well. And the first stage for us will be to uh, gain, again, hold uh, essential business meetings, including staff and elder and other essential team meetings um, as well as small groups, up to 10 people or about a dozen people at a time. And that's going to start May 15th. And if you're not part of a small group, I want to encourage you, if you would like to join one or if you would like to start one, I want you to contact Pastor Patrick Murphy at the church office and he'll get you hooked up. Uh, but the next phase, that's phase one, but the next phase for us is going to be some creative, fun, 
groups and gatherings of up to 50 in the month of June. Our staff right now is working very hard trying to put, we're trying to put our head together to figure out some really fun ways to meet uh, in the month of June. And we're going to do that. It's going to be so cool. And so we hope the weather cooperates. Please do uh, pray for good weather. That'll be a part of it. And so we'll be looking for more details. We can't share them now, but looking, be looking for uh, more details in, in the coming week here about what we've got planned for June. And then ultimately, we've got some great plans in the works for the month of July as well. We cannot wait to share the details with you as soon as we have hammered them out. But to be perfectly honest with you, um, we're just making it up as we go. <laughs> so we're hoping the summer will allow us again to do a big blowout party, a family reunion. Uh, folks, we ask during this time that you, you would just continue to be patient and that you will also remain flexible um, as we are literally just kind of making plans on the fly. And uh, we're going to try and have as much fun with this gradual reopening as we can. And I want to encourage you to continue the ministry of prayer for our nation, for our community, for your, for your church, for your leaders. And also, I want you to pray for our political leaders. The Bible commands us to do that. I want you to pray that God will give them uncommon wisdom in these uh, uncommon days, right? Pray that God will give them wisdom and God will do it. God will do it. We love you guys. Can't wait to see you again. More information coming soon. Uh, we'll see you. Bye.